Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. All right, morning church, how we doing? Woo! If you're new with us, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the, uh, the senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH. We're glad you're with us. Yeah, we're almost in full swing for the fall. Does anybody else feel like we went from like zero to a thousand in our household really, really quick? Um, and then I say fall and it feels disingenuous because it's going to be 104 for the next two months still. So I just hang on. We'll be okay. We'll make it. Um, but uh, we're wrapping up our series this week in, uh, in Love Where You Live. And so that means next week we're jumping into something new. We just want to let you know we are launching into a new series that's all about marriage. It's all about relationships. It's called Tighten the Knot. Um, and uh, we're excited um, about that. And we're twice as excited because we get the chance to hear from, for the first time ever, uh, from our next-gen pastor, Brian. He's going to be teaching week one next week, so make sure you're here for that. And the good news is, Brian has been married for seven years, and so he has all of the answers. Like, he's got this marriage thing down, not going to be an issue uh, at all. If you need any advice, man, just go, uh, <laughs> go ask Brian. Um, but, uh, but really our goal for all of this is to kind of walk through a, uh, a biblical understanding of what it means to be married in, in today's world, right? With a lot of our culture having different understanding of marriage, its benefits, its value. This series is going to cover God's intention uh, for marriage and, uh, and some helpful biblical ways to help navigate your marriage when times are both easy as well as, uh, as, well as difficult. So we're excited for that. That's next week four-week series. We're going to launch, uh, launch into that. But that can all wait for next week. Uh, this week, we're finishing up our series in, uh, in Love Where You Live. And it's been so much fun for us to kind of look out and into our community as we, uh, as we do this and serve our community. I'm not, Jeff was not kidding when he said he was like a celebrity, right? Like Jeff, when we went out and we, you know, we served, uh, served those farm workers, Man, I mean, like individuals were coming up and like being like, hey, can I get a picture with you? I was like, I, he was the old guy there, so I'm sure they were like, oh, that's the senior pastor. Um, but, uh, but man, photo after photo after photo, and I'm just sitting there like, all right, now nah, it's cool. I'll just, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll take a picture of you and Jeff for you if you want, you know, whatever. Um, but, uh, but man, they were just so grateful that they were thought of and cared for, um, you know, a group of people that largely um, doesn't get a whole lot of love, but really... And so much of our community, uh, we, we have them to thank for, for that, and it's a thankless job. So great job to all of you for giving um, and making sure that we can, we can do that. Um, but, uh, but as we were working through this, as I was working through this, this series of messages in Love Where You Live, and we talk about how to love different groups of people and that sort of thing, I got to the understanding that I don't think we ever fully... Um, fully got to a point of really us, us coming to a full understanding of how we love people best. Like, how is it? If you had to answer that question, how is it that you would love somebody best to the best of your ability? I asked a bunch of people that question this week, uh, and uh, including, including Pastor Jeff. And uh, so I said, Jeff, how do we love people best? And man, he started like waxing eloquent, like it was like a classic pastor answer, right? Well, first you need to know them well enough to be able to understand how it is that they receive love. And once you understand how they receive love, then you can begin to love them well. So if acts of service is their type of, and so he like overthought the entire question. I was like, Jeff, you overshot this real far, man. Like just let's take a step back and recognize that we are Christians and our call on, on our lives, if we are going to love people to the best of our ability, we need to introduce them to Jesus period, full stop. That's how we love people best. 
And once they come to that understanding, the discipleship, that piece and all that stuff, and to be fair, that's a fair question, right? Like, like how is it, or a fair answer rather, how is it that we can love people best? Because even in my life, um, you know, my wife receives love in a different way than I receive love. And so when my wife feels love, it's we're sitting and talking and having a conversation. That quality time piece is there for my wife. And I mean, so much quality time, right? <laughs> we're talking again about stuff. Cool, 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 cool. Um, and, uh, and my, like the way I receive love is acts of service. So for me, I'm like, why, why are we sitting here talking? We could like get up and clean the kitchen while we're talking, you know what I mean? And like, then that way you could experience love and I can experience love and the kitchen would be clean. Like it's a win all the way around. Um, but, uh, but, but really, the easiest way and the best way that we need to love people is by introducing them to Jesus. Because if we're to love people well to the best of our ability, introducing them to Jesus is the answer. That's it. And maybe you can take it a step further. And in order to love someone to the best of my ability, you know, they experience love by serving. Okay, I'm going to help them build a fence and talk to Jesus about them at the same time. That's fine. But the important piece really is that we are introducing those people to Jesus and walk them and talk or walk with them and talk to them about what he has done in our life. So in order for us to do that, we have to thoroughly understand the gospel. And I think unfortunately, today we have a biblical illiteracy problem in America. And not just in America, in our churches as well. I think it would be shocked to find out the number of people who are either sitting here today or other churches or Christian churches around the world who cannot accurately articulate the gospel. And if we can't accurately articulate the gospel, we are going to be doing people that we are trying to introduce to Jesus a disservice because our responsibility is to accurately introduce a real Jesus to them. So today we're going to be in the classroom for a little bit, right? We do this every once in a while. We're going to be in the classroom. We have to lay some foundation and then we're going to get to church at the end, okay? So the first part really is we got to talk about what the gospel actually is. And so if we look at Romans 3.23, it tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That needs to be our starting point. That all of us are inherently sinful. None of us are inherently good. Right? I actually, I spoke at a, um, a junior high camp know, a couple weeks back now, a couple months back, I guess. And the whole premise of the camp was just articulate salvation each night, right? So night one was creation, night two, the fall, night three, redemption, like all these different things, right? And, um, and so I'm getting them to this biblical understanding of Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm getting them there, and I say, okay, we're going to take a poll. We're going to poll the audience. Raise your hand if you think that man is inherently good. Hand shoot up, 40% probably of the room, hand shoot up. Okay, raise your hand now if you think man is inherently good sinful, 60% of the hand. So I was happy to see at least a little bit of a, uh, a split. But really, we have to get to this understanding of ourselves about uh, like our spiritual state if we are going to get to an understanding to be able to articulate the gospel to non-believers. That Romans 3.23 has to be our starting point. That we are all sinners in need of a savior. Like you know, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And there's a lot of people who may disagree with that idea especially in today's culture, that no, I think man is inherently good. No, I am a good person. My mom told me to, so numerous times. I know that I'm good and I'm special and I got trophies all the time. But what we do next really is the challenge for a lot of Christians. It's not the understanding of Romans 3.23. What we do next 
is the challenge. Is how is it that we articulate the gospel? Because from this point, most people tend to go in one of two directions. People, people's theology and under, understanding the gospel is a lot like a sliding scale. Okay, so on one side of that uh, of that scale, you have this idea of relativism. Okay, so relativism is going to be on on one side of our scale. And your theology becomes relative when, when you decide that it doesn't matter what you do after you pray a prayer of salvation because you're gonna go to heaven and you have your golden ticket. You're like, all right, I prayed a prayer of salvation, done. I'm go, like, and I've shared this story before, but um, long ago, long ago, when I was a youth pastor, we took a trip to St. Louis. And St. Louis at the time, uh, the inner city of St. Louis was, man, it was a, a hard place, it was a rough place. I mean, crime was, was skyrocketing and all that stuff. And um, so we took our students there. <laughs> um, but, uh, but we went there and our job was just to love these kids who didn't get a lot of love. And so we played basketball with them all week where like our job is to establish relationships with all these kids, their parents, all of these leaders, all this different stuff, right? And so we're on the last day and Meals on Wheels is coming, right? And everybody's pumped on Meals on Wheels because we've been brown bagging it for four days. And so Meals on Wheels is coming and um, they roll up, and as soon as they roll up, whoosh, moths to a flame, right? Everybody's getting over to Meals on Wheels, and because they know, man, it's going to be a good meal coming up. And um, this, uh, this large man in a bright purple suit walks out of the, uh, the Meals on Wheels van. And, um, I mean, I just wanted to listen to him because he had, like, one of those really, really big voices, and he was like, children, come on over, and I was like, I'm going to come too, because this guy said, I mean, this is Santa Claus in a purple suit, um, and uh, so I walk over, and we're about to lead, and he, and he says, we're about to eat lunch, but before we eat lunch, we are going to pray, and I was like, all right, great, cool, Jesus, he's praying, like all that stuff, we're, we're in, we're in for that, but he says, we're going to do that in just a second, but before we do that, I have a question for you. Do any of you, I'm starting to sound more like Santa than him. Do any of you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? <sighs> Easy answer, heaven, right? Like I'm in 100% of the time, right? Every single time I'm saying, I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. And so the kids are like, you know, same thing. They're like, I want to go to heaven, you know, all that stuff. And of course, all of them, they, I don't blame them. And the purple suited man after that says, I thought so. So if you want to go to heaven, all you have to do is repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I accept you into my heart. Amen. And like that was the end of it. It was the end of the conversation about Jesus. That, hey, if you want a golden ticket, if you want to be able to get into heaven, just repeat these words that I'm saying to you. No understanding in their heart, like, like no belief in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, no repentance of sins, no actual conversation about who Jesus is. Like, like those kids had no clue if they actually were going, like, like if they actually wanted to go to heaven, they needed to actually believe in their heart and actually repent of their sins and then do their best to choose to follow him. They had no clue about that. That purple-suited man was very, very effective in successfully converting a bunch of kids to relativistic theology where you have to do nothing to be able to become holy. And I think where we are in a relatively conservative place in California, and we have a conservative uh, theology here at our church as well, so where we are at, we largely don't default to that side. Largely, we default to the other side. We default to the side that we would call legalism. Now, if you know anything about legalism, you know anything about uh, the Gospels, Jesus' essentially sworn enemies in the Gospel were all legalists. 
So that's not a very good starting point for us, right? Because we're like, I understand the Bible, I understand the things that I'm supposed to do. So because of that, I am going to act holy all of the time, which inherently is not bad. But you start thinking to yourself, okay, I need to, I need to jump into a small group. Okay, I'm in a small group. Good. Check that off my list. Oh, the church is doing something, anything. I need to be at the church. The church has a deficit in spending. I need to give to that deficit. And like, I need, like I, need all, I need to do all of these things. And the problem isn't the act of doing those things. The problem is the mindset when you're doing them. So if you are doing those things because you are fearful of losing your salvation or you are fearful that you have not yet done enough to be able to accurately represent who Jesus is and done in your life and because of that, you're worried you're gonna go to hell, that's legalism that I have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get into heaven. And oftentimes, what comes with legalism is a judgmental spirit as well towards other people. As you, see to yourself, or you say to yourself, I need to do all of these things. This is how I am best going to represent Jesus. So if I do all of these things, then that means everybody else who says they love Jesus should also be doing all of these things. And then if they're not, I'm gonna look down on them at that point. I'm going to shame them for not believing some of those things. The reality is, is the gospel is really, it's right in the middle of that spectrum. That's where the actual gospel sits. It's the understanding of Romans 3.23. We're all sinners in need of a savior. That God does not allow sinfulness near him. So someone has to then endure the wrath of God. Because God cannot have that. God cannot have sinfulness near him. And so his wrath has to be poured out somewhere. Well, Romans Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So where does God's wrath supposed to be incurred? On the sinner, on us, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so because of that, God's wrath should then be poured out on us. But thankfully, Romans 5.8 exists. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why? To incur the wrath of God. To step in on our behalf. So Jesus' death on the cross, it took God's wrath for us so we could experience unfettered communion with God. Here's where the beauty of the gospel and our responsibility comes in. We can do nothing in order to gain salvation. We can do absolutely nothing in order to gain salvation. It doesn't matter how many doors you knock on to talk to people about Jesus. You are no more saved before you knock on a door than after you knock on a door. It doesn't matter how many times you pray a prayer that says, God, I want to go to heaven. You are no more saved before you pray that prayer than after you pray that prayer. But because of the fact we are so grateful to God, we are so grateful to him for what he has done, we then desire holiness. We desire his standard. We desire to, to flee from, from sin so we can honor our loving father with our lives. But the question remains then, how do we become holy? Again, we're still in the classroom. Stay with me. We are laying the foundation here. How do we become, become holy? St. Augustine, he says it this way. The first thing we need to do, we need to come to terms with is that, is that the fact that we love things out of order. That was a really bad quote. We love things out of order is largely what he was saying. We think we love things in the right order. And if you're here on a Sunday morning, most likely you would say, like, oh yeah, God first, then family, then friends, and then work depending on the day, right? And, and our order, we think, yes, this is the right order. But in reality, we end up worshiping other things. 
We love things in a different order. And actually, William Temple said it best this way. He says, your real God is what you do in solitude. Whew. Which is tough. Like, what is it that you are thinking about? What is it that you are acting upon? What is it that you are doing in solitude? That is your real God. And I don't need to fill in the blanks for you here. But when you are alone, are you valuing that downtime and comfort, that idea of like self-love? Is that your highest goal? That treat yourself mentality, like is that your highest goal in life? Is your highest aim sexual fulfillment? So much so that, man, you're driven to pornography. What is your God when you're in solitude? What is it? So then the question becomes, well, then how do we fix what we love the most? Because if that's how we become holy, by loving God first and best, how is it that we fix what we love the most? Well, Augustine said that we, should, we shouldn't change our thinking. We should actually change our worship. Who is it? What is it that we are worshiping? That's how you change your heart. What is it that you're spending your time honoring? Is it pleasure? Is it gratification? Is it money? Or is it honoring God with your actions and with your thoughts? So if we're going to worship God as we are called to do, Romans 6.31, man, this is, a, this is one of my favorite, fav- or Psalm 6.31, rather. It's one of my favorite psalms. It says this, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and a parched land where there is no water. I think we can all relate to a dry and parched land where there is no water. I don't know if you've heard, we're in a drought. So you understand what it looks like when you actually water your plants or water your lawn. It comes to life. And so once we can do that, once we can do that and show reverence to God in our worship, then we should be so struck by God's awesomeness that we should indeed desire his holiness. That should be the natural outpouring of our view of God is worship. And in our desire of holiness, we need to bring people to Jesus who don't know him. Which is, I think all of us would agree, at least if you're a Christian here this way, that that statement, if you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, we want non-believers to come to know Jesus. Right? And I get some head nods. And it's a Baptist church, so we don't say amen really loudly or anything like that, but maybe like a, an elbow nudge or whatever. Like, yeah, non-believers should come to know Jesus. Here's the issue. We don't actually care that much. That's the issue. You know how I know? Because we don't have people here every single week who were introduced to Jesus by one of you the week before. I know, I'm going to step on all of your toes. You guys are going to get upset at me, and I'm probably getting the email. But hey, I'm preaching today, so let's go for it. Here, and, and here's how I know. And, and oftentimes we do. There are people who come through our doors who, who don't yet know Jesus sometimes. But man, it is not every week. We average around like 400 people here, right? That's our average. And let's go like basic math, 400 people, 52 weeks a year, assuming that each of us talked to somebody who was in our relational world once a week and maybe invited him to come see the professional Christians on Sunday. Cool. That's 20,000 people. That's how I know we don't care that much. The numbers don't add up. Cut it in half. Say once every two weeks. Okay. 10,000. Go to a quarter then. Play it out in your head however you want. The problem is is we are simply happy reshuffling believers. That's what the church is happy to do. Man, as long as we can protect that bottom line, as long as we can protect the fact that we are going to end the year in the black, we're good because we're taking care of ourselves. We're taking care of number one. 
man, back in 2021 or 2020, rather, you know, we're, we're meeting online, we're doing all that stuff. And one of the things that came out of it is, and uh, the pastors from all around the community, like we met weekly via Zoom. We're just like, hey, tell me what you're doing. When are you opening? When are you doing all that, all that stuff? And I'm not trying to get political here or anything like that. But, but once all the churches really started to reopen at the end of 2020, 2021, whatever, um, there was a conversation that was had with a couple of us that we were like, man, I mean, I'm happy people are back in church, but I don't know any of these people. I don't know where my congregation is. I don't know who my congregation is anymore. Why? Because in the midst of a, a rocky political season, in the midst of a Black Lives Matter movement, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of all of these things, believers began to see the church through a political lens rather than through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of Jesus. And that's hard. And so all of a sudden, people are like, well, I align more politically here, and, I align, and we just started thinking like that. And so when churches started opening up, we're like, oh, well, I can meet this week, or I don't have to wear a mask at that church, or, or they're doing stuff on, on, online still, and I'm more comfortable with that. We started perceiving the way that we honor and worship God politically rather than through the lens of the Bible, rather than, rather than through figuring out, hey, man, uh, man, that pastor, his theology is a little off, and he talks about health and wealth gospel and that sort of thing. And so, but man, I really like the music at that place. So I'm just going to kind of take that with a grain of salt or take, take that out of it. Man, evangelical Christians, one of their favorite phrases when they leave a church is, I just wasn't being fed enough. Come on. You are not children. We are not children. And so the question then should be, we should ask ourselves, and how then do we actually win people to Jesus? Because if we're not just about reshuffling the deck and being like, oh, they have a great worship pastor there. That's great. I'm going to start coming there. But the pastor's kind of boring. He talks about his kids too much. So I'm going to go to a different church where he talks about his grandkids and said, whatever. Like, how is it that we actually bring people into the fold? Bring people, how do we win people to Jesus who were either secular and once had no faith or were raised in another religion? And other, oftentimes, like, like the answer to that is that the answer is we don't care enough to bring them in. So how do we convert people? Stats say that in order for your church to bring people to Jesus, 25% of the church has to believe and act on these four things. Okay, so if you're a note taker, and I know some of you are like, okay, four things. Here we go. Number one, believing is hard. 25% of your congregation has to agree with the fact that believing is difficult and sympathizing with those who do not yet believe. Unfortunately, oftentimes we're just like, well, I was raised in a Christian church, Bible says it, I'm going to do it, right? And that's like our take on it, rather than empathizing with somebody who either wasn't raised in a Christian household, who had a difficult time with the church, and they're like, you know what, hey, this is what the Bible says, why can't you just believe what the Bible says? I'm going to present all of the evidence in front of you. We have to empathize with the fact that believing is hard. We also have to be okay and encouraged to be in community with people that look and act and believe differently than we do. That's the hardest one. It's simply being okay, being in community with people that do not look like you. 25% of our congregation has to agree with that. And not just agree with it, but act on it. Because all of us will be like, yeah, I agree with that. Cool, look around. Does everybody else look like you in your relational world? That's the second thing. The third thing is 25% of your congregation has to be okay with listening well and not interrupting people. 
Not getting so defensive about your faith. Well, they said something bad about Jesus. Jesus can handle himself. The Bible can stand on its own word. It's been doing it for thousands of years. They do not need your over-defensiveness of God, Jesus, and Scripture. I promise. Sit there. Listen. Don't interrupt. And the last thing is, 25% has to be okay talking about Jesus in a gracious way, not a domineering way. That's it. Those are the four things. And I think, I don't think I blew anybody's mind with that. I don't think we're, we're, we're treading on new pavement here or anything like that. The truth is, though, that evangelism is getting more and more difficult. Bringing people to Jesus is getting harder and harder. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you want to know what our goal is, our goal is to introduce you to Jesus. Cards on the table. That's it. We want you to know Jesus today and in a greater way tomorrow. That's our goal. But it's getting harder and harder to evangelize because the rise of the internet age, the information age, because there is so much information about everything sitting in our pockets that people are more willing to ask Google a question than somebody who has lived life through it. And that's hard. And that's why C.S. Lewis says it's more difficult to evangelize to the lost today. So you may be a C.S. Lewis buff, but you're not like C.S. Lewis coming from a paper that he wrote when he was younger called The Modern Man and His Categories of Thought. Like, if you're not up on that, C.S. Lewis, like, this is stuff only really smart pastors like me quote. But um, why did you all laugh? I was being, just kidding. Um, I'm not going to quote it, but essentially Lewis, he, he argues that there used to be three types of people that the world needed to evangelize, that the Christians needed to evangelize, right? The first one where there were Jews who they knew God, but they didn't know Jesus, right? Go Old Testament. The second one, they were Gentiles, where uh, they, were, they, they knew God, but they weren't Jewish. And the last one were pagans, and they would worship whatever God got them the largest crop for that season, right? But here's the interesting thing about those three groups of people, and that was, all, that was the only three groups of people. Here's the interesting thing about them, is they actually all believed in the same three different predispositions. All of them believed the same three things, they all believed in the supernatural of some kind. You did not have to convince that group of people of deity because all of them believed it. The Jews believed it, the Gentiles believed it, and the pagans believed it. What deity is probably the question that needed to be asked, but all of them believed in deity of some kind. The second one is that all of them were conscious of their sin and feared divine judgment. All of them did. They were worried about the afterlife. They knew that the actions that they were like walking forth in their life today were going to have repercussions in the afterlife. Again, what afterlife may be up for debate. And number three, all these groups believed that the world was once better and had gotten worse because of man's actions. So you could argue and talk about Jesus from the same starting point with everybody. Romans 3.23 was universally believed. It is no longer so. That, that of the recognition that man is inherently sinful. And even as we look at it, even though they were all much different in their beliefs, at least we could start from that same point. Like, do you believe in that there is a God? Yes. Cool. Are you aware of your sin and that it could cause judgment for you when you die? Yes. Cool. Do you believe the world is worse off now because of man's actions rather than God's? Yes. Great. Let me introduce you to a guy named Jesus who fits all of that criteria, and he took the wrath of God for you. Man, that, I'm easy, right? Easy. We don't have to worry about all these other philosophies, all this other stuff. Christians used to be able to hang on those facts. They can still talk about Christianity from a common viewpoint of the world regardless of their belief. This is no longer the case. 
If you ask 10 people walking down the street, you'd be hard-pressed to go 10 for 10 for people who believe in the supernatural. You'd be hard-pressed to go 10 for 10 for people who cared about eternal judgment. You would probably go 10 for 10 who believe that man has messed up the world and it was better at one point than it is now. But everything else, that's hard. And this is why oikos is so important. Here's the turn. Welcome to church, everybody. Okay, Oikos, if you're new with us, you don't know what it is. Oikos is a Greek word, and that Greek word means household. That God is caring for, or you are caring for these 8 to 15 people that we would say God both supernaturally and strategically placed in your relational world that you are responsible for making an impact in their life for the kingdom of God. People you know, people you already have relationships with, you have some sort of relationship with, and some of them can be your family members, people you have a deep relationship with, but others could be parents on your soccer team that you recently just became the coach of. People that maybe you just met for the first time. Are you saying you can just meet your oikos for the first time? Yes, absolutely. If God has put them on the front row of your life, you better believe those are oikos connections. Why does this matter? Because people can, order, uh, people can argue philosophy as much as they want. They can argue world points and viewpoints as much as they want. They can argue politics as much as they want. The one thing that they cannot argue with is your personal relationship with Jesus. And as you start talking with them about him and start telling them about, hey, this is what Jesus has done in my life, there is no argument there. Actually, John chapter 4 does a, a pretty good job of explaining all of this. John chapter 4 is a great passage in the Bible. It's about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And so Jesus and his, his disciples, they're, they're tired and they're going through this town called Samaria. And I preached on this recently, but because Jesus, he's tired, he sits down at a well and at that same well, a young woman comes down and she's drawing water in the middle of the day. And I preached on this recently and so the, the interaction between her and Jesus isn't as important today. What I want to get to is the end of this story. But just to make sure everyone understands what goes down, Jesus offers this woman salvation. It's in John 4, 25 and 26. It says, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He introduces himself as the savior of the world. So she's blown away by this, like absolutely blown away by this. And she goes back into a town and she tells her people, she tells her oikos what it is that's going down with this guy. So all these people are coming out, right? And the disciples are missing it. The disciples here, they're just missing it because the disciples, their care right now is like, I got to get food. I got to take food to Jesus. He's got needs that he needs. Like, like we just got to get him food. We got to get him a nap. All of us are tired. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's make sure we are well taken care of. There'll be time for other people later. And so they're coming back and, and this lady is gone. But as they're coming back, there's literally people walking towards Jesus and the disciples are just missing it. Because they want to circle their wagons and take care of their own people. And Jesus keeps telling them, hey, there is something more important happening. There are people waiting to meet the Messiah. John 4, 35 says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. They are ripe 
for harvest. So the disciples are missing out on the fact there's a ton of people who need to hear about Jesus. There's a ton of people literally walking towards him who need to know him. And they are too engrossed on taking care of their own needs that Jesus had to shake them out of their stupor and say, look, look at all of the people who don't know me. There's plenty of time for food. There's plenty of time for rest. There's plenty of time for your work. There's plenty of time for retirement. There's plenty of time for your way of doing things. There's plenty of time for your family. Look around you because the harvest is ripe for the taking now. In verse 38, he says, I sent you to reap what you haven't worked for. Others have done the hard work. Now it's time to reap. It's time to bring people to me so they can have a relationship with me. And then he goes on in verse 39 or it goes on rather, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, or oikos. He told, he told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. So because Jesus had someone in his oikos show up on the, on the front row of his life, and he said, let me introduce you to myself, the Savior of the world, and he had a conversation with her. She was so blown away by the fact that he was the Messiah that she goes back into town, gets all of her people, and then they start believing in Jesus as well because of her testimony. That's how it started after she told her story to them. But guess how it ended? In verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we believe, or now we have heard ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. They came to an understanding of Jesus because one woman told them, come listen to this guy. Like, this is the savior of the world. Look what he did in my life. Look what he told me about my life. Look, he told me who I was. And so, man, because all of that, they come, and they come to this under, understanding. And if you go back and read all of John 4 and the woman at the well account, you'll recognize that, that Jesus understands those four principles that I talked about that a congregation needs to believe and walk out in their life. They're all there in, uh, in, John, in John chapter 4. Jesus understands that belief is difficult. And the first half of that that conversation is her just understanding what water Jesus is talking about. But understanding that belief is difficult. And then the second thing remains to be true as well, that he is willing to talk with someone who is much different than him, culturally shunned from them, different socioeconomic status, drew water in the middle of the day because the other wives were gossiping about her. And he's willing to sit down and have a conversation with her. Beyond that, he's willing to listen without interrupting her. And maybe most importantly, he enters into a conversation about the Messiah both gracefully and truthfully. He's incredibly gracious the entire time. Why? Because he loved her enough to share the greatest news that's ever been shared or spoken. And yeah, for us, you're like, well, yeah, that's Jesus. Great. She did the same thing. She went and told everyone she knew, and herds of people came back. 
Tons of people came back. Why? Because she was like, let me tell you about the Messiah and what it is that he has done in my life. Church, in order to love people well, we need to be willing to share Jesus with those who are in our relational world as we recognize that belief in Jesus is difficult. As we recognize that it's okay to be in community with people who are different, with, that, different than us. That we listen without interrupting and we share Jesus graciously with them. Because it's too important not to. So this morning, and we'll end with this, this morning, I want to ask you, very simply, who is it that is in your relational world that doesn't know Jesus? Think about that for a second. Who is it in your relational world that does not know Jesus? And secondly, do you love them enough to have a hard conversation with them when you bring up why it is that you go to church every single Sunday? Oh, yeah, we go to church every Sunday. And we do so because we love Jesus and we made him Lord of my life. Let me tell you about it. Like, are we willing, are you willing to enter into that conversation? Who is it that maybe you've, been neglecting for far too long because it might be an awkward conversation about Jesus. Maybe you raised them. Maybe they were in your household and they have walked away from Jesus in some way. And so you're like, you know what? I don't want to rock the boat. I want to keep a good relationship with them. You love them best by talking to them about Jesus. You love people in your workplace best by talking to them about Jesus. You love people on your kid's soccer team best by talking to them about Jesus. That's it. And when it feels awkward, that's when it's time. You're like, I know I should really do it. Okay, do it. It's time. And every single one of us in here have people in our relational world that we need to love better by talking to them about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for today and thank you for your word. God, I'm just, uh, I'm thankful for your son and the fact that we love where we live best by talking to people about him and that hasn't changed that that will not change that will never change and so god thank you for that thank you for your son that you loved us enough that you sent him to die on a cross for every single one of us and i pray that we would just have this righteous boldness to be able to proclaim your name to people in our oikos to people in our relational world I pray that will be true this week. And God, maybe there's people in here who have not yet said yes to you, and so with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if that's you this morning, you're like, man, explaining the gospel, and I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and I believe that Jesus went to, like, if if that is you this morning, the Holy Spirit is just beckoning to you, then I would ask you to make a profession of faith, and we would love to know more about that, that conversation. But you can simply repeat after me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. That I am sinful, as Romans 3.23 tells me. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins. That you loved me enough to send your son to die. I believe that. And C, I choose to follow you every single day. I would choose to become more holy every single day. 
And as I choose that, as I choose holiness and I choose you and I recognize the security of my salvation, as I choose those things, that I would be willing to introduce my oikos, my people, to you and simply tell them what you did in my life. Father, thank you for that. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.